Welcome to Meet Me in the Middle, the podcast that looks at the often, and as you'll read here today, very problematic uh, wellness world. Uh, my name is Lee Freiling. My name is Jenny Awani. And I'm Annika Buckle. Okay, people. I really hope you're ready for <laughs> a real dense episode. Um, we're going to talk about orthorexia today. And I just want to preface this. Annika is a million times better at doing these like, you know, pre-show warnings, but we're going to talk about a lot of stuff today that might be triggering for some people. So we're going to talk about orthorexia in particular. That's the whole focus of today's um, podcast. I'm going to be talking about anorexia nervosa. I'm going to be talking about OCD. I'm going to talk, I'm going to be talking about sort of puritanical beliefs around um, food, religiosity around food. Um and so, you know, we're going to be talking about like sort of body image and we're not going to be talking about calorie counting per se, but we are going to be talking about restricting food and entire food groups. So if any of this is like real hard for you to hear, this is not the episode for you and that's totally okay. Um, but if you are someone who has ever wondered whether or not as a sort of broad brush of the, you know, stroke of the brush, it's a good idea to eliminate entire food groups without you know, very legitimate medical sort of backing up of whether or not you're going to do that or not, you're going to learn today about that and how that's probably not a good idea. Um, so throughout this whole thing, I also have some questions that I've already presented to the girls, uh, ladies, excuse me. Um, cause I really want to hear sort of their sort of, you know, point on this. Um, before we get into this, I want to be the first person to say that I probably spent mm, at least 10 or 12 years, um, not in full-blown orthorexia, but in definitely dabbling in orthorexic type behaviors. Um, and I can tell you that, um, you know, a lot of it was bought into by this belief of, you know, clean eating and purity of what I was putting in my mouth and purity of what I was feeding my kids. <sighs> And it was absolutely, it was just like a fire being fed ravenously by the wellness world that I was swimming in for a really, really long time. Um, I think one of the big kind of wake up aha moments for me was when my son was like mm, 12, maybe, maybe 13. Um, I think he was 12 and he had been invited over to a friend's house. And I said to him, Oh, you know, cool. He's like, yeah. And they, they fed me dinner and I was like, Oh great. What did you have? And he said, well, they offered me a chicken burger or a beef burger. And my reply to them was whichever one's organic is the one for me. And he looked at me with this big smile on his face, like he was doing the right thing. And I was just like, Oh my God, <laughs> this is terrible. And basically from that point on, I've been buying Oreos and having them in my house every single week, every, ever since. So, um, you know, that's just kind of my sort of initial intro, uh, ladies, where are you? Where Lee, are you kind before of we dive in, do you have, is there like a, like a textbook definition of orthorexia? Like I oh, kind of, ever. Mm-hmm. <laughs> can mm-hmm. we start with that? Cause I feel like until we started talking about it, I wasn't even really clear around kind of what it was. Sure. No problem. So orthorexia, the word itself, if you break it down, orthos means correct and rexit or rexix means appetite or hunger. So the quite literal thing is like, you are eating the right thing. Okay. Um, from the definition or from the national eating disorders.com site, uh, although not formally recognized in the DSM, um, five, which is the diagnostic and statistical manual that, um, the entire field of psychology and therapy uses, um, awareness about orthorexia is on the rise. It was coined in 1998 and means an obsession with proper or quote unquote, healthful eating. Um, Although being aware of and concerned with the nutritional quality of you eat isn't necessarily a problem in and of itself, people with orthorexia become so fixated on so-called healthy eating that they actually damage their own well-being. Without formal diagnostic criteria, it's difficult to estimate how many people have this um, and whether it's a standalone eating disorder or whether or not it is a sort of combo deal disorder between orthorexia and uh, OCD. And I'm going to talk about that a little bit more. So it's hard to have like, because it's not a diagnosable thing, Mm -hmm. there is not strictly speaking a complete sort of like definition of what it is. I think what's 
been helpful for me in terms of like looking over the research um, has been understanding rather that it is a uh, group of sort of concerning behaviors, ideas, ways of looking at the world. Okay. So in and of itself, it's a fixation over the quality of food that you eat. I really, I find it really interesting that the definition Mm -hmm. like literally breaks down to like right eating. You know, Mm -hmm. I think it really just puts really clear markers on how it leads to this kind of obsessive existence within our lives. A hundred percent. So at the core of orthorexia, people living with orthorexia are extremely focused and often obsessive over the quality and purity of their food. Individuals with this condition often limit sort of like foods that are green or okay to anything around foods that are, you know, including, but not limited to organic farm, fresh, whole, raw, and, or vegan. You can also put in grass fed. You could also put in biodynamic. You could also put in local. You could also put in a whole host of non-GMO, non-GMO, all this stuff. And generally speaking, the quantity of the food is less important than the quality of the food. Okay. So in and of itself, there's an initial sort of focus on the quality of the food, but there's a whole bunch of other sort of warning signs and symptoms, right? So one is inflexible eating patterns. So someone with orthorexia is likely to be incredibly rigid about their food consumption. Okay. So anything considered by the uh, individual to be bad or unhealthy or dirty or unclean or um, you know, an inflammatory food. I think that we have heard this term inflammatory foods a hundred thousand times, um, are likely to be avoided. So common example of this inflexibility is if someone with orthorexia was stuck on an Island and the only food available to them was something that they would deem unhealthy, they would choose to eat nothing. Right. Cause they don't want to poison themselves with X bad food. Uh, another sort of symptom or warning sign of orthorexia or orthorexic behavior are severe emotional turmoil. If these quote unquote rules are broken. So if someone strays from their rigid eating patterns or from their strict self-prescribed re- uh, exercise regimen, because there's often exercise that goes along with this. Cause again, we're talking about purity of the body, right? Um, severe anxiety, distress, shame, and, or guilt or depression typically will follow. And I mean, I don't know about you, but I have hella witnessed that right? Like somebody Mm -hmm. who is starving, they have to eat something, they eat the thing. And then they like tear themselves up about how sick they're going to be later, or I need to do a cleanse later, or I shouldn't have eaten that or whatever it happens to be. Right. And I mean, typically for all intents and purposes, they're fine, but they have a lot of, um, sort of, yeah, like shame and just like a lot of negative feeling around what happened. Mm -hmm. Right. Uh, another sign is cutting out entire food groups. This is what I alluded to initially. Um, this certainly tells you how rigid the orthorexic food-based diets can become, right? So elimination of entire food groups is totally common within orthorexic type behavior. And it is common occurrence. Um, and that commonly includes processed foods, sugar, meat, dairy, carbs, gluten, you know, keep going. Nightshades, unpurified water, um, you know, a whole host of grains, things that aren't sprouted, things that aren't raw, blah, blah, blah. Right. So depending on kind of what diet you have ascribed this meaning of, you know, purity and correctness to will, you know, dictate which foods are unclean and you can't have them anymore. Right. Often there's an unusual interest in the health or of what other people are eating. Right. This is where we get into a lot of like, oh, you're eating that? Like a lot of like nosy or like, you know, well-meaning like, hey, I mean, when I cut out gluten, dairy, and sugar, I mean, I just felt so much better, right? Like a lot of sort of like- like, well-meaning judgment, right? uh, (laughs) Well-meaning judgment and also proselytizing, right? And this also becomes a really key aspect of this disorder. Um, There's also an obsessive following of food or healthy sort of lifestyle blogs, on like sort of Twitter and Instagram. Um, and actually this is one disorder that has been sort of pointed to as being almost entirely sort of informed by the internet. Mm. Right. So we'll talk about that later. Also, um, constant worry about sickness or disease, right. 
they fall back to the whole good versus bad foods. Uh, many individuals with orthorexia believe they will fall ill if they consume foods that are not quote unquote whole or clean and often referred to foods that are not whole or clean as being poisonous or toxic, right? We've ah, toxic. The toxic, you know, food thing a hundred thousand times, right? Uh, and to them, the risk of these foods potentially causing sickness and disease, although almost all the time unfounded, far outweighs the benefit of eating that particular food for whatever reason, right? Um, certain, some, excuse me, some anxiety, some, excuse me, uh, many people who struggle with orthorexia uh, experience anxiety just being around certain food, right? So they're not even necessarily eating it, but like, you know, if they were, had to stop at like a McDonald's to like, I don't know, use the Wi-Fi, they might feel so stressed about even just being around such quote unquote unhealthy food. And then by extension, people who are participating in eating said, unhealthy food, right? Um, this condition, interestingly enough, is not often or typically driven by poor body image. Um, while individuals with orthorexia, which, you know, again, we sort of talked at the beginning that there seems to be some discussion around, um, is this a form of atypical anorexia or is it something else? Um, so unlike those types of people who may exhibit similar patterns of restriction, um, orthorexia isn't necessarily rooted in obsession over appearance or efforts to lose weight. Orthorexia is entrenched in the need to eat or to be healthy. Okay. Mm -hmm. Uh, and then also within orthorexics, a very common sign is loss of weight. Right. And this is where we need to recognize that a lot of wellness culture is diet culture with some lipstick on it. Right. Because if we if don't we... call it a diet. It's a lifestyle. It's exactly. not a diet. Exactly. But right. lo and behold, if all of a sudden somebody tells you that all carbs are toxic and unhealthy and you start to lose weight and you start to get a whole bunch of praise for that, hmm, you know, what's what's really the motivating factor here? Right. Um, and so it's not necessarily a clinical marker of orthorexia, but some cases do involve weight loss. An orthorexic diet is an unbalanced diet, almost exclusively as far as the actual like sort of definition of it, right? Uh, it's an unbalanced diet um, that often actually can lead to malnutrition, which, you know, is ironic. Ironic. <laughs> because the whole point of, you know, engaging this type of heating, eating is to be, you know, ultimately healthy, right? Um, so while they may feel like they're cutting out some, you know, entire, you know, categories of food to bring incredible health benefits, often they're doing quite the opposite and they're depleting their own nutrition in vast in by vastly limiting, uh, food variety. Again, this type of weight loss is not necessarily intentional, right? So, you know, here's my question for you guys, right? Like, have you ever unconsciously felt better or felt more pure or cleaner by engaging in what we would probably have called clean eating, but according to the research is actually orthorexic type food behavior. Yeah. I mean, so I will start this by saying I recently found an entire bin of clean eating magazine, <laughs> like right. magazines, like with recipes and stuff from probably Oh, 13 years ago. Like, I mean, mm -hmm. before, before I found my recipes on Pinterest, let's put it that way. Right. Um, and I still remember, and I actually don't want to say too much about this. Cause I feel like this is someone I want to look into the big proponent in those magazines was a lady called Tosca Reno. And her thing was about, she lost weight eating this way. And mm -hmm. therefore, mm -hmm. you know, she mm -hmm. became less like godmother for eating clean and her cookbooks were the eat clean diet. Mm. I had two of those cookbooks. I recently, like, I wouldn't even keep them in my Airbnb. Like when we were like <laughs> putting stuff up in the kitchen and we're like, oh, there's a shelf for cookbooks. What are the cookbooks we don't really use? I was like, I am actually not even going to donate this. This is getting recycled. Right. Um, so yeah. So, I mean, that sort of gives you a glimpse into how I would answer this question. Mm -hmm. I think that even then it wasn't at that point, when I was using those recipes for guidance, I wouldn't even say there was that much ortho or um, uh, like obsession or over concern. It was more like, oh, I need inspiration for food and this is good for me. So I'll find my inspiration here. Mm -hmm. However, I will say when I was deep in the trenches of the wellness world, there was a lot of very fear-based mm -hmm. messaging that came at me that I took very seriously. And a lot of that looked like, um, you need to look after your future self. Mm -hmm. 
um, like very highly, um, you are responsible for everything, like for you are responsible for you, but and no one's going to look after you. So you have to do this for yourself mm-hmm. in a fear pointy finger pointy way. And I still remember Dave came home one day with blueberries and they were not organic and I would not let our children eat them. I was hoping you were going to tell the blueberry story. <laughs> and I was like, do we throw them away? Like, what do we, what does one do? What does one white person in a middle-class neighborhood do with non-organic blueberries? Still expensive non-organic blueberries. <laughs> oh, for sure. <laughs> they were, right. yeah, the, but, but yeah. And I remember, I still remember being horrified when Amazon bought Whole Foods, not because Amazon bought Whole Foods, that didn't horrify me at all. But what horrified me is now there were non-organic foods in Whole Foods. Cause traditionally before that, like our original Capers store in Vancouver that was bought by Whole Foods, mm-hmm. it was literally a hundred percent organic. So right. you never had to read any labels or anything. Everything right. was organic. And then when Amazon bought Whole Foods, that changed. And I remember being so upset because now I had to like vet the labels. I, and now I'm like, oh my God, I'm upset that Amazon bought Whole Foods. <laughs> <laughs> that upsets me. That's the, that's it's actually like, a bigger It's like problem. you get to the same place, but via a completely different route. Yeah. Right? Totally. Still angry just for different reasons. Yeah. And I mean, uh, yeah. So this is definitely something. And I think it's worth chatting to, or, and you know, way more about this lead, but when you look at the DSM five, in terms of diagnostic criteria, each, um, diagnosis has like basically characteristics that have to be present for the mm-hmm. diagnosis to be mm-hmm. made. Mm-hmm. Right. And because you have, and that's why in mental health, there's often a lot of, um, multiple layer diagnoses. So if you mm-hmm. see someone who's schizophrenic, they often have something else too, right? Mm-hmm. Like it's also very rare. bipolar or yeah. also a lot of yeah. comorbidities or, for sure. or, or different psychiatrists will diagnose differently, right? Mm-hmm. Like, so I think it's really important to say that because there are very strict criteria for what has to be present, it means that there will always be a lot of outlying because you won't necessarily meet all of the criteria. There could be five bullet points in that DSM five, and you have to have every single one to, to be given that diagnosis. And if you don't have all of them, that's where you get, you get, you know, um, people that don't meet criteria. Mm-hmm. It right? kind of reminds me a little bit of like, um, like a normal range versus an optimal range. Like mm-hmm. I remember I went to my family doctor who was like, Oh no, your iron's normal. And then I went to another doctor and she said, well, you're at an 11. So yeah, but maybe that's normal, but like, we'd love to see you at a 30, you know, mm-hmm. that's not mm-hmm. still not great for you, you know? Yeah. yeah so totally. you're gonna, you're gonna end up with a whole bunch of people who would listen to your, the definition you read and be like, that doesn't apply to me because I'm not all of those things. And it's like, but there's still, most things kind of exist on a spectrum or a continuum. Mm -hmm. Right. And if I know that even, Mm -hmm. um, for, I was thinking about this when you were saying that I was like, oh, maybe I didn't really have orthorexic tendencies because I didn't have a hard time changing my behavior. And I think it's like, well, no, no, no. I, I wasn't in a full blown diagnostic addiction phase. Right right? Lots of people smoke and have no trouble stopping smoking. Not everybody is addicted to smoking, right? right? I don't drink alcohol. I had zero problem yeah. stopping drinking alcohol, right? Yeah. So not everybody has, it, it, it doesn't, just because we think of like, okay, if I wasn't the worst possible case scenario, that means yeah. it didn't happen. Right. Well, and even <laughs> just your blueberry story is a good example though of like stress, right? Because like these 100%. blueberries, these like gorgeous blueberries that were probably like literally grown like within like 50 miles of your house. Cause that's where so many blueberries are grown. Right. Uh, just cause they weren't organic. Now you're like, if I give these to my kids, I'm going to poison them. Right. Like that's, that's that kind of thinking. Mm-hmm. What about you, uh, Annika? Yeah, I think, um, you know, it's really interesting to think about that piece of like, will I feel better? Because I think that's something that that's kind of a weapon that I wielded a lot around this. Well, I just feel better when I'm not eating grains. I just feel better when I'm not eating dairy. Um, you know, a a couple of times a year, I used to do like a really rigid program that had very specific, you know, foods you can eat and foods you, there was a chart, 
you know, that I would feed myself into. And, you know, the first three or four times I did it, I got stronger at the gym. I lost a bunch of weight. I had a lot of social reinforcement. So then it became like, this is the right thing to be doing. Mm -hmm. Um, And then the flip side of that shows up as, you know, restricting and then binging and then feeling bad and then being concerned because I'm eating in this way. And then my kid's not eating in this way because, you know, I was always very much more lax with the things that she was willing to eat mostly because as she was growing up, we really ran into a lot of problems about her. Just like, she doesn't give a shit about food at all. She's Mm -hmm. not motivated by food. She doesn't she starts, she lost weight for a while at six mm. months. We went to a pediatrician. I was really worried. So it was like, whatever she's going to eat, I will feed her. I kind of don't care. Mm-hmm. Um, but then I didn't have that same standard for myself. It was like, mm-hmm. no, 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 I have to follow this really rigid thing. And, you know, I think it's kind of like we talked about um, in uh, our episode a couple of weeks ago, like, do I you know, do I feel like I can like tick the boxes and, um, you know, know what I'm doing and I have guardrails and that feels safe for me. And I think probably a lot of this comes from that idea of like, here's something I can control. Right. And Mm -hmm. I know we've talked about that and I know around that's a big part around, you know, eating disorders too, is this is something that I can control. Very much so. Very much so. So, uh, or, or th- thank you guys for both of those things. That was very helpful. So orthorexia is not currently in the DSM-5, as we said before, but from what I can see, it appears that it is the reason why it doesn't have a formal diagnostic yet is because research right now can't really determine whether or not uh, and or sorry, orthorexia is an atypical form of anorexia nervosa or OCD or a real cool combination of both. At this point, it appears to be a little bit of a combination of both, but a little bit more tending onto the OCD side. Um, so until such a time that there's, you know, they're able to kind of nail this down. It won't be a formal diagnosis. However, it is something that's very much recognized. If you go on any of the national eating disorders websites, there's always going to be a section about orthorexia because at the end of the day, it still has a lot of the key markers of a uh, sort of clinical eating disorder, right? Um, The other reason why it's not formally in the DSM-5 yet is because there haven't been enough studies on treatment yet. Um, Interesting. Because in order to be able to say like, yeah, this is a thing and we know how to treat it, they need to kind of do that work too. So, I mean, as we know, science is a very slow moving ship. Um, and especially when it comes to something like being able to achieve a formal diagnose, diagnosis, it's also a very, it's an even slower moving ship from what I can tell. Um, but I, when I was reading that, I thought that that was really interesting. I hadn't considered the adjacentness to uh, obsessive compulsive disorder, mm-hmm. but the more you sort of read about it, the more you realize, oh, oh yeah, okay, that makes a lot of sense. So there's pr- proposed criterion for diagnosis. Criterion A, obsessive focus on healthy eating as defined by a dietary theory or set of beliefs whose specific details may vary marked by exaggerated emotional distress in relationship to food choices perceived as unhealthy weight loss may ensue as a result of dietary choices, but this is not the primary goal as evidenced by the following compulsive behavior and or mental preoccupation regarding regarding affirmative and restrictive dietary practices believed by the individual to promote optimum health violation of self-imposed dietary rules causes exaggerated fear or distress sort of disease sense of personal impurity and or negative physical sensations accompanied by anxiety and shame uh, and dietary restrictions escalate over time. That's a key aspect of this as well. Uh, and may come to include severe or complete elimination of entire food groups and involve progressively more frequent and or severe cleanses or partial fasts uh, regarded as purifying or detoxifying. This escalation commonly leads to weight loss, but the desire to lose weight is absent, hidden, or subordinated to the ideation of healthy eating. So that's criteria A. Criterion B, the compulsive behavior and mental preoccupation becomes clinically impairing by any 
any of the following malnutrition, severe weight loss, or other medical complications from restricted diet, intrapersonal distress or impairment of social, academic, or vocational functioning secondary to beliefs or behaviors about healthy diet, and positive body image, self-worth, identity, or satisfaction excessively dependent on compliance with the self-defined healthy eating behavior. So this is where I think it's really interesting to kind of like understand kind of what we're working with, right? Right. So is it an important thing to sort of like have a goal to eat in a way that's healthy for you? Sure. Of course not. Right. Like, of course it is. Like we all generally know generally fruits and vegetables are good for you. Generally water is good for you. Generally you should have lean proteins generally, you know, whatever. But when it becomes your whole gig, you know, I remember traveling and sort of going along with people I was traveling with who immediately had to land and get to a grocery store because they had to buy their own food so that they could have their own food with them all the time so that they could eat because they generally couldn't eat anywhere. Right now, this is different from people who have very legitimate eating concerns, such as people who've got celiac disease. Right. So I know I have a friend who has celiac disease. She really struggles with travel because she gets gluten. And when she gets gluten, she is in the hospital. Like she is really sick. Right. So this is a different thing from that. But I think it's important to note that, you know, when it comes to sort of these, what we would broadly sort of define as kind of being outside of the norm behaviors. These are some of the things that we kind of can see or recognize, right? So, you know, <clears throat> with regards to orthorexia nervosa, which is the clinical name for it, um, as per the National Library of Medicine, um, to meet the DSM-5 diagnostic criteria for anorexia nervosa, patients must weigh below minimally normal weight for their height and age, which is also problematic. I was just going to say, don't even get me started. <laughs> I know, very problematic. But again, this is according to the DSM-5. This is why a lot of people in bigger bodies do not get diagnosed or do not receive the support that they actually need for their eating disorder. Mm-hmm. Um Anorexia nervosa has an intense fear of gaining weight or becoming fat and have a disturbed experience of their body or body shape um, and cannot recognize the severity of this low weight. Okay. In contrast, this is an interesting thing. So this is where the sort of diagnostic aspect becomes difficult. In contrast, an individual with orthorexia nervosa may may possess normal or low normal weight. Patients with an anorexia nervosa focus on food quantity while patients with orthorexia tend to focus on food quality. So it's quantity versus quantity. Um, Bratman, who is, or Bratman rather, who is the guy who sort of coined the term orthorexia in the first place, said people are ashamed of their or, of their anorexia. This is very true. If you've ever known anybody who has anorexia, they mm-hmm. do their damnedest to hide it. But people with orthorexia actively evangelize their orthorexic behaviors. Mm -hmm. Yes. People with anorexia skip meals. People with orthorexia do not, unless they are fasting. Those with anorexia focus only on avoiding foods, while those with orthorexia both avoid foods that they think are bad and embrace foods that they think are super healthy. Do we all remember the coconut oil phase of a few years ago? Where we're all supposed to be eating spoonfuls of coconut oil day day after day, right? I mean, it just rotates. Acai berries, the mm-hmm. yeah, coconut oil, bone broth, like drink as much bone broth as you can handle, like all of these things that in and of themselves like aren't like bad foods or whatever, no. but like really eating scoops of any type of oil like that really should be used for I don't know, cooking. Cooking. Yeah. <laughs> and I'm gonna talk a little bit later about some of the thinking that goes along with sort of evangelizing these individual foods. The similarities between uh, orthorexia nervosa and OCD include anxiety, a need to exert control and perfectionism, right? I have Mm -hmm. definitely known some people who are real perfectionistic with regards to their eating, right? Uh, Mm -hmm. However, patients with OCD tend to report distress from compulsive behavior and its desire to change, thus exhibiting insight into their illness. Similarities between obsessive compulsive disorder um, or as obsessive compulsive personality disorder and anorexia nervosa, sorry, orthorexia nervosa include perfectionism, rigid thinking, excessive devotion, hyper morality. This is a really key aspect of this and preoccupation with details and perceived rules. Finally, there's a report. This is, this blew my mind. There's a report of orthorexia nervosa being associated with the prodormal, So pre phase of schizophrenia 
and the development of orthorexia nervosa may increase risk for future psychotic disorders. Oh, wow. wow. Right? It blew yeah. my mind. When I read that, I was like, whoa. Because it feels like it's just harmless. Like it's just food choices. It's mm-hmm. healthy. It's not like, you know, you're not binging McDonald's. It's just healthy food choices. How can it be bad? Mm-hmm. Exactly. So when it comes to sort of risk factors, right? While anorexia mostly affects white, young, or very young middle-class women, orthorexia seems to be less discriminating in terms of age and race. And according to studies to date, although the economic criterion middle to upper class aspect appears relatively stable, as in you need to have money to be this fussy about what you're eating and time you've got and time. Have, you're not somebody who's working three part-time jobs and worried about like your juice cleanse. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Exactly. So in 1997, holistic medical uh, practitioner, Steve Brotman, who's I quoted before wrote a piece in yoga journal uh, entitled health food junkie, in which he described his longstanding obsession with eating clean, pure organic foods and how he eventually overcame that. And isn't that an interesting thing to think mm-hmm. that this is something we have to overcome, but mm-hmm. I digress. Uh, Brotman thought that it was a psychological state that he had achieved once he had decided to self-medicate with food. And I think that these are some really interesting word choices because ultimately this idea of if you can eat your way out of illness or out of sickness, Mm -hmm. right? What are we doing? We're self-medicating with food. Uh, Orthorexia begins innocently enough as a desire to overcome chronic illness. This is what Brotman wrote, um, or to improve general health. But Because it requires considerable willpower to adopt a diet which differs so radically from the food habits of childhood and the surrounding culture, few accomplish the the change gracefully. Most resort to an iron self-discipline bolstered by a a hefty sense of superiority over those who eat quote-unquote junk food. Over time, what they eat, how much, and the consequence of dietary indiscretion come to occupy a greater and greater proportion of the orthorexic's day. Well, I find it really interesting too, on that note, because like you were just saying, Lee, it's like, you have to keep ratcheting it up, right? Mm -hmm. It's like, it, it has to be, okay, now I've cut out carbs. Now I've cut out grains now, right? Mm -hmm. It's like, it's like, it's like a beast that has to keep. Well, and it's a perpetually moving target, right? Mm -hmm. You know, one day kale is a superfood and the next day it's like a something inflammatory something. Yeah, Yeah, exactly. Right. So it, it becomes really, really challenging. So This is where I think orthorexia gets really interesting outside of just looking at food. And it starts to sort of, you know, blend with kind of religion and spirituality and puritanical sort of Mm -hmm. beliefs, right? So in his original Health Food Junkie article, Brotman described how a melange of alternative therapies and practices, including yoga, vegetarianism, and veganism, raw food diets, macro diets, and others were recruited with a zealous zeal in the quest for absolute health in an increasingly restrictive diet in pursuit of wellness or even fixing a real or perceived physical ailment begins to feel righteous, holy, even, uh, dietary asceticism thus replaces any sense of an Epicurean enjoyment with a self-side probidity that verges on arid Puritanism. Now I had to look up some words when it came to that, but arid Puritanism is just like dry, terrible, joyless, (laughs) crusty, right? But it is this super pure sort of thing. Now, when I think about that, I start to conjure up images of The Handmaid's Tale, Mm -hmm. right? Of just this like absolute rigid, like there's no fun happening there. Religiosity. Exactly. Exactly. So orthorexia underscored by a perfectionist streak would therefore involve obsessive compulsive behaviors that may lead to its extreme version into malnutrition. Otherwise, to dysphoric states characterized by rigid self-denial, right? So this is where there also is a lot of sort of depression adjacentness to this, right? When you, everything you eat sucks (laughs) 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 and you're eating it alone. This is the other thing too. And this is a real aspect of this is there's a real Mm. self-isolation aspect of orthorexic type eating behaviors because Because other people aren't eating like this. No, nobody else is like, you know, it's a good idea. An entire bowl only of meat, you know, for the (laughs) carnivores out there. Right. So I think 
you know, when we're talking about orthorexia, I think it's also really important to talk about sort of like the thinking that comes along with it. Cause nobody is just like, Hey, you know, it's a good idea. I'm just going to cut out all the food groups that somebody else thinks is a bad idea. And then I'm just going to eat like that. Right. Like how do they sort of get there? You know, um, they talk a lot, you know, Brotman and his co-author David Knight talks a lot about how orthorexia is partially informed by food fadism, self-chewed, sorry, half-chewed, uh, Eastern philosophies and cultures and muddled up new age type alternative spiritual practices. Um, it also, you know, really has a lot to, and I'm sure you guys have heard this a hundred times, you know, they want to avoid a medication, right? Mm -hmm. Medication, big pharma is the ultimate bad guy. Mm -hmm. So they're going to eat themselves into health, right? Uh, you know, and they're going to overcome, you know, some minor health conditions through diet alone or major health conditions through diet alone. And, you know, unfortunately, you know, where diet can be helpful in many ways, especially in a preventative capacity, right? Preventing with heart disease and cholesterol and all this kind of good stuff. You know, ultimately there's just not, a, there's the research isn't there around, like if you turn vegan, all of a sudden, you know, you're never going to get cancer. Like it's just, it just doesn't, it just isn't there. Now it's not to say that these things might not be proven in some way or another in the future, but at this particular sort of point, that's like, it's just like not a thing. So another thing that I found really interesting in terms of the research was the statement that most orthorexics report similar self-reported magical thinking <laughs> about food. <laughs> a careful elimination diet would be the cure-all for everything from a vague sense of unease I don't know about this thing all the way through to allergies and cancer. Mm -hmm. So the benefits are elusive. The bar is always moving, right? Uh, it's the dieter's fault for not strictly adhering to the regimen. If something goes wrong, where have we heard this before? Right. This totally. It's, oh, it's, it's, you did it wrong. That's why it didn't work. It really feels like it comes back to this very, and I mean, we've talked about this before, but this like individualist, mm -hmm. every solution is within you. If it's not, it's your fault. Totally. totally. And a lot of it comes from things like so many of these co conspiracy type things come from something that's true. Like it takes mm -hmm. a little bit of something that starts being true. Like, Hey, mm -hmm. um, I mean the most researched, um, diet on the planet in terms of health benefits is the Mediterranean diet. Right. Mm -hmm. So, so it goes from like, okay, well, um, it's pretty much within dietary experts, um, accepted that the Mediterranean diet, if you were to pick one solitary diet, right? Which is a whole conversation on its own. But if you're going to mm -hmm. pick a diet, that is the most healthy one for you to pick in terms of um, what, your ethnic, ethnicity, your gender, like blah, mm -hmm. blah, blah. Like this is what is we we understand as being the most healthy diet. It's not saying other diets aren't healthy. It's just saying totally. this is what the research yeah. shows. So you take that and you're like, and you can see how things spin off of it. And it's like, oh, well, the one of the cardinals of the Mediterranean diet is it's not very meat heavy. Right. So, so then if you, not very meat heavy is healthy, yeah. then vegan must be even healthier. Mm -hmm. It's, it's this it constant just takes that little bit right? and it goes on this runs with it. It's like, and it runs with what suits them too. Right. Oh, okay. Well, um, omegas are good. Okay. So, so we know omegas are good. And now all of a sudden you, maybe you have someone who sells omega supplements, which mm -hmm. I take, by the way, I'm not demonizing taking omegas, mm -hmm. but like you can see how now you're getting pitched information where there's a financial interest, which is such a huge summary with, especially in the wellness world. Like people say ph pharmaceutical industry is a giant industry and it is, but two things can be true. Mm -hmm. The wellness in industry is also a multi-billion dollar industry. Mm -hmm. So if the pharmaceutical industry is automatically dangerous and bad because it is so highly, um, monetized, monetized. How is it that the, we're, we're totally cool with highly mon high monetization in a peril in like this area. Yep. It's not okay over here. And then it's like, but now we need to move the target. Right. Mm -hmm. And it goes back to, Oh no, 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 no. But you, but it's your health and blah, blah, blah. Mm -hmm. And then mm -hmm. you cherry pick your, you pick your next point, cherry pick your data. You go along, you know what I mean? And it just well, spirals. And I think this brings everywhere. us right to the next point, which is where are people getting this from? Right. Orthorexia is a reasonably new sort of disorder. Right. Um, and so there's been a lot of conversation around like, where did this come from? There was a lot of conversation in like the eighties and nineties around anorexia and being highly 
highly influenced by magazine and ad culture, right? Mm -hmm. Through stick thin, six feet tall women who weigh Calvin 90 Klein pounds. Ads. The, exactly. All that kind yeah. of stuff. Why? Because it's what they see. They're being, they're seeing this visual representation of what beauty ultimately is right mm -hmm. now. Orthorexia is not necessarily beauty attached. Although I will say there's a whole lot of like radiant health is beautiful sort of messaging. Right. <laughs> but one of the things that they've talked about a lot in the research is how, uh, various, um, you know, people in the field are theorizing that orthorexia is actually a cyberpathy, right? So a digitally propagated condition targeting all media users and in particular digital media mm. users. Okay. Which makes sense when you look at the spread. Cause I was just thinking, I was like, well, hold on. Historically humans have always done stupid shit. Cause they thought mm -hmm. it was good for them, <laughs> especially with eating things. Right. Mm -hmm. But so, and like one that pops to mind because I just finished watching the empress not that long ago was, and I looked this up because I'm that awful, hor horrible person who's like watching a show and Googling every single <laughs> fucking thing that I'm like, mm, I don't know about that. Or like, I'm anyway. So, um, but like women used to drink raw eggs because they mm -hmm. thought it would help with their fertility. Right. Well, the only reason that didn't spread like wildfire is because like literally a lady's maid to a queen would have to go tell her friends and be like, mm -hmm. Just so you know, the queen who's mm -hmm. got six sons, she, she drinks raw eggs. So obviously there's a direct correlation and then they have to like word of mouth and send letters. And then a horse takes the letter to the next, but <laughs> you know what I mean? Like you just can't, it's like that shit, the same as effective. Totally. No. Even no. if it spreads, <laughs> it's never going to be like a viral TikTok video. And you're also like, I want to look like the queen. Cause all you've seen is like the portrait that some guy made. And she was like, mm, can we make me look a little thinner? And he's like, okay, sure. Do you know what I mean? Like, so you're, you're seeing like one image of somebody that's also this sounds familiar, been highly edited. I was just right? going to say, speaking of like the original <laughs> photo shops. Yeah, <laughs> totally. <laughs> totally. Was it was a for portrait painters. Yeah. It's yeah. So, you know, with regards to the cyberpathy aspect of it, Bloomberg, who's one of the people who's being quoted in this article, um, you know, argued that food and diet are the arenas in which affluent young women are in the post-industrial world workout struggles for autonomy and identity, connection and control, and that the current cult of diet and exercise is the closest thing to our secular society offers young women in terms of coherent philosophy of the self, right? Mm -hmm. So where 200 years ago, 300 years ago, you know, people were mostly concerned about actually just staying alive, right? We live in a time now where that's not the general concern. And we have a lot of women who are looking for that sort of like meaning. What do I, what's my purpose? What's my place in this world? Right. And mm -hmm. in a land where you're being fed a nonstop 24 hour, as much as you can possibly consume sort of stream of messaging around this kind of thing, it may, it stands to reason that this is one of the major sort of influences. So in, in terms of dietary advice alone, the amount of information on what, how, when or even where or why we should eat abounds, as is the characteristics of the majority of such information. And it is only occasionally vetted or supported by credible or sustained evidence. We have talked so many times on here about people who are telling you what you should eat and how many of them are registered dietitians, basically none of them, right? Mm -hmm. And your the whole idea. point about sustained evidence is it mm -hmm. you have to be able to replicate it. Right. So that's why people will say like, Hey, there's this study. And it's like, mm -hmm. yes, but if it's, if it can't be replicated, then it, it's not valid for, to be used as a hallmark to change yeah. large scale recommendations for, for people. You have to be able to replicate yeah. Like that is a yeah. cart. That is what peer review. That's one of the checks and balances in there, right? Like you can have one really good study. It's been hundred reviewed, but guess what? If you can't replicate that, it, it becomes then, irrelevant. It yeah. absolutely becomes irrelevant. Yeah. It's anecdotal at best. So here's yeah. my question to you guys. Can you think of a time where the internet sort of influenced your eating and feeding choices or perspectives? I mean, I can. Do you want one time? I was like, like, I'm trying to I think, think like that it didn't is maybe a shorter list. Right. I mean, here's the thing, especially once you kind of end up, once the algorithm figures out that that's the content you're looking for, it, it 
happens constantly you know and for me I mean y'all know I've talked about this before I hate cooking I hate it so much Mm -hmm. Um, which means that one of the only ways I survive by putting food on my family's table every night is like look googling recipes looking for Mm -hmm. things and so once you find somebody you know this is a great recipe oh she has a whole blog you can very easily even without an algorithm go down the rabbit hole of restriction even without intending to Totally. Let's look, for example, I pulled up, I, this probably makes me old. I don't care. I love Pinterest, especially for recipes. I love Pinterest. It's my, so it's my jam. I type in dinner recipes, dinner, and then it tells me what it, you know, it's like Google, right? Dinner recipes for my family, dinner recipes, healthy, dinner recipes, low fat, dinner recipes, <laughs> um, easy dinner recipes, whole 30 dinner recipe. Mm-hmm. Like it literally starts pulling because I mean, and it's not smart. It's literally just like, well, this is what other people with your demographics are looking for. So like, right. we're going to try yeah. and help you find information. Like they become dietary specific. And a lot of it, it's like dinner recipes, gluten-free dinner right. recipes, dairy-free, right. It's all. And that's not to say that that's bad because geez, if I had celiacs, I would absolutely love to be able to make my little search totally. engine for that, but, but it's all being constantly curated for you, right? It's all about rapid access of information. Mm -hmm. And once it knows what type of information you're looking for, it's like, we're just going to just channel that in. So now you're seeing more and more and more of this specific sort of, and I find too, that part of it that you're looking in. Yeah. Part of it's not even necessarily like whether or not I've looked it up. Like as soon as my algorithm knows that I'm like a white lady in her forties. <laughs> oh, that's what I mean. That's what I mean by yeah. it knows what people like me. Yeah. Oh, because right now, you yeah. must be looking for gluten-free recipes. Yeah. Oh no. Right now it assumes that I'm looking for support with my hormonal health because I'm oh. definitely perimenopausal. <laughs> oh. That's what it's, that's what it's sure of. Yeah. <laughs> Anyways. Okay. So in terms of sort of wrapping things up here. I could do like a 12 hour special on this thing. I have so much, (laughs) I have so much research that I got through. We didn't even really get a chance to kind of get into um, like really the sort of spiritual religiosity, puritanical purity sort of culture aspect of orthorexia and orthorexic type eating behaviors. But what I wanted to talk about was sort of how you get yourself out of this, right? Mm -hmm. So one of the bigger challenges in terms of this, which I said at the beginning is that at this point, there's not a lot of clinical sort of research or data available around effective treatment strategies, right? And I think for a lot of people, this is because it's not as deadly consequential as something Mm -hmm. like anorexia. Anorexia um, until very recently had the highest mortality of any mental health disorders that was recently only eclipsed by fun times uh, by uh, opioid addiction. Mm -hmm. So, you know, that's a horrific thing to talk about, but because we don't have a ton of people dying from this does not mean that it is not worthy of, you know, treatment and research. There is movement in that direction. It just isn't totally there yet. So in terms of sort of treatment or how it is, you get yourself out of this, realizing what you're doing in the first place is really important. That's one of the reasons why I focus so much on kind of like the signs and the symptoms and warning signs of uh, whether or not you're engaging in orthorexic type behavior. Um, a lot of the recommendations just come with therapy, right? So starting to kind of create less of a, you know, dualistic sort of perspective of everything that you put in your mouth as good or bad and see it for a multitude of reasons why you might want to eat it. It tastes good. It brings you pleasure. It reminds you of your grandma, your son made those cookies, whatever. It doesn't happen. It doesn't matter what it is. It doesn't have to be slotted exclusively into good, bad, Uh, Mm -hmm. medication can be really helpful, especially if there is, um, depression or, you know, if you do get a diagnosis of sort of the OCD aspect of things, there may be a chemical imbalance that just needs a little bit of support there. Uh, re-education, right? So education around intuitive eating, you know, education around the fact that like the vast majority of the world just kind of eats and they're mostly (laughs) kind of fine, you know, like (laughs) recognizing that if you have Oreos every, you know, if you have an Oreo every day, you're, it's probably not going to kick you straight into a fast track of like, I don't know, some horrific stomach cancer, cancer, right? (laughs) Um, Refeeding is really important. And this is something I think that for Mm -hmm. me was a kind of a part of it, right? Like realizing that when I ate delicious, normal bread, 
it didn't actually like give me all the gut problems that I thought it did. Right. Like I'm actually kind of okay. My poops are fine. My tummy feels okay. It was really delicious. It was a hell of a lot better than that gluten-free shit that I didn't need to be eating. You know what I mean? So like the refeeding aspect of things now that can be really complicated. If someone has got really restrictive stuff going on or really deep anxiety and fear, and that very well may need, um, a professional to kind of walk alongside them in terms of that. Um, you know, even just trying quote unquote dangerous foods, right. Mm-hmm. And noticing like, Oh, I'm still here, still standing. Right. Like depends on kind of what your threshold is. Cause for some people, what I'm talking about is way too scary. They definitely mm-hmm. need a full team approach in terms of, you know, in terms of like a, you know, registered dietitian and a therapist, potentially some outpatient stuff. Um, Other things, though, for people who are maybe kind of more like where I was at, allowing yourself to eat for pleasure, not just seeing everything you put in your mouth as like fuel or nutrients or macros or whatever it happens to be, right? Um, Recognizing the puritanical thoughts that you've got, right? Recognizing that binarization in our thinking, right? Exactly. How binary we're looking at this, you know, sandwich, And sort of like, am I painting a devil's tail on this thing? Or am I going, dang, that looks like a good sandwich, right? Like, what are we doing here? Or, hey, I used to eat sandwiches like this with my dad when I was like a teenager. And it was great, you know, that kind of thing. Um, uh, Dialectical behavior therapy is something that's been uh, often cited as being helpful. And exposure therapy, right? So slowly Mm -hmm. allowing yourself to try these things and recognizing that kind of the sky didn't fall. Yeah. That's where I went the exposure therapy route. And I think I messaged Annika. No, it was a different friend of ours and was like, for the first time I bought an entire, like, this is like a month ago, literally avoided all organic food. Mm-hmm. And unfortunately with inflation, I didn't save any money, but <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Any other time you definitely would have, I mean, I'm yeah. mad at how much money I've wasted on all the organic things over my I lifetime. Know. Good grief. Like, It's so interesting. I find, you know, in my own brain, it's so helpful to think like I can, I can start to pick apart the binary that I've put on gender. Mm -hmm. I can also start to pick apart the binary that I've put on food, you know, totally right. If I can, if I can do one, I can do the other. It's really a lot more arbitrary, much like gender Mm -hmm. than I think we have been taught. Well, mm-hmm. and like we've talked before, I mean, like when it comes to nutrition, there's very few hard and fast things here, right? Like mm-hmm. research around nutrition is really hard because guess what? We're dealing with everyone's different body and everyone's different body is everyone's different body. This is just how it goes, right? Mm-hmm. We know you need to eat enough, right? We know you need to drink enough. We know mm-hmm. you should eat some stuff that is delicious. We know you should eat with other people. This is what mm-hmm. we know for the most yeah. part, right? Well, thanks Anyways, for that, ladies, Lee. Thank you so much for this. This was uh, a That's good, it. a good thing. And if we ever need to do a part two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, I'm definitely. <laughs> I feel like I feel like part two probably is going to click on to this like brewing you and I have had around like purity and wellness culture because mm-hmm. I think mm-hmm. there's something there. I Very much so. Okay, out. ladies. Well, I hope you all enjoy your afternoon eating. I don't know some Twizzlers and maybe an apple and like some cheese and like some chips or something. I don't know. Yes. Sounds good to me. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks so much for listening to In The Middle. We really appreciate your support. And if you could do us a good favor and subscribe and share this podcast, it would mean the world to us.